My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. Today's episode is about neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism? It is an ideology that believes in the introduction of competitive market norms into what were historically non-market domains, healthcare, education, electricity, water provision, etc. All of these services that were part of the compromise between labor and capital right around the mid-20th century are now available for transaction through the marketplace. In today's episode, I consider the basis of neoliberalism and how ultimately it undermined then the democratic capitalist compromise of the 20th century. First model. Atlantic Fordism. Atlantic Fordism. Atlantic Fordism is based on manufacturing. Manufacturing, so we think of Henry Ford, manufactured the very first automobile. Atlantic Fordism, we are going to manufacture, develop a manufacturing system built around assembly lines. The aim is to produce standardized, low-cost, goods. So there's a specialization taking place. So if you think historically, an individual would make a chair from beginning to end. An individual would make an outfit from beginning to end. Remember I told you about the households. The households could grow the cotton. The households could spin the cotton. The households could weave the cotton. And if they wanted to, they could tailor the cotton. So they could be vertically integrated operation from beginning to end. Henry Ford comes in and says, you know what, we can achieve greater efficiencies in production if we specialize. So we'll have one person growing, another group spinning, another group weaving, and a final group tailoring. And then the tailors are not the ones who are selling it. There I'm going to get distributors who are going to buy it they are going to transport it, and now we have retailers. So the specialization begins. But as that specialization begins, and as I pointed out last week, we need laws for each level of specialization. So there must be laws that pertain to agriculture. There must be laws that pertain to labor, the spinners and the weavers. There must be laws that pertain then to transport, to sales. The list goes on and on. At each level, we are now having to construct new laws to facilitate that specialization. So Ford takes it to another level, and he says standardized, low-cost goods, and he adds an element to it. He adds the element of labor. And he said what is essential then is producing low-cost goods and paying the working force a wage that is sufficient enough for them to buy what? The products you are producing, precisely. To buy back the products that you are producing. Remember what we said, we need resources and we need markets. So Henry Ford is producing cars, he needs a market for the cars. Now the question is, who is going to buy these vehicles? You're not about now to start shipping these vehicles around the world. The system, the transport system, is not so sophisticated. 
so I have to build the local market. Well, the only way I can do that is ensuring that the people who are building the cars are ultimately the ones buying them. And for anyone who's seen any of these old documentaries or old films, you would always notice, what kind of a vehicle are you driving when you're going to the Ford plant? You're driving a Ford vehicle. What kind of a vehicle were you driving when you went to the GM plant? You would drive a GM vehicle. If you worked at Fiat, what kind of a car did you drive? The list goes on and on. Everything was set up to ensure that the workers themselves are the ones purchasing the goods that you are producing. Atlantic Fordism. Well, what do you need legally to achieve that? Well, you need the materials. I need to access the materials. So either I have enough steel being produced within my market, or I have to obtain that steel from elsewhere. But what do I also need? Well, anyone here know how to build an engine? Probably not. I don't think any of you are engineers. I need engineers. I need to know how to build it. Anyone here know how to design an assembly line? No. We need technology. We need skills. So I need a skilled labor force. I need the technology. And I must have a market. So the laws that Ford is lobbying for are laws that are ultimately going to provide some type of minimum standard of living for the labor force. Otherwise, they're incapable of buying the goods that we're producing, meaning I have no market. Now, consider that in relation to the labor force during the Industrial Revolution. Anyone here visited York? center of industrial revolution you can go to the museum and you can walk down an alleyway in the museum and it's actually right, quite a harrowing experience not just because you see how decrepit the conditions were that people were forced to live in but they actually have the odors the scents the smells there and the putrefaction that one is meant to grow accustomed to and you look at that and you compare it with what took place a generation or two later and you say the conditions for the working class were very different. The conditions were very different because the economic model had changed. And as the economic model changed, it required a change in the associated laws. So we see then health and safety regulations emerge. The International Labour Organization develops. We begin to push the idea of possible treaties around labour. And much resistance to that. But that is Atlantic Fordism, the first economic model that emerges. And now Ford, like others, are saying, we need access to markets. I need to find a way to transport this T-model Ford beyond the borders of the United States. Second model that emerges. Second economic model known as import, import substitution, import substitution sometimes import substitution industrialization. So import substitution. The aim of the country is to reduce its foreign dependency. Its foreign dependency. How do they reduce their foreign dependency? They reduce their foreign dependency by producing locally, that is what is key here, producing locally industrialized products. Okay. Put it in perspective, we are in the 20th century, there is this shift that has taken place, we've had this second great European war, what did I say to you took place afterwards? Decolonization, 
all of those former colonies were now fighting for their independence, achieving their independence. Now, what does the theory of comparative advantage tell them they're meant to do? Precisely. Excellent answer. So we look at it and we say the theory of comparative advantage is telling me that I should specialize, I should focus on producing what I am already competent at producing. And I think of this in terms of costs, but I'm not just doing this for me. I am also doing this because it will create, remember that specialization we referred to with regards to the Ford, the assembly lines? It will create a type of specialization throughout the world and then all production will become more efficient. But where did the Industrial Revolution happen? The Industrial Revolution happened here, in Europe. And remember what we said before, accumulation by dispossession. These other parts of the world were being dispossessed of their resources and often dispossessed of their people as well. So we end up having a gap where these other economies exist for purposes of extraction, to extract resources that are needed, to fuel the industrialization, the industrial production that is happening elsewhere. So there is now a division between these two parts of the world. Those who are producing manufactured goods, or those who are manufacturing goods, and those who are producing primary products. And how much are you likely to pay for an apple versus how much are you likely to pay for a slice of apple pie. As soon as there is some labor added to it, then that increases then the sale price. So the added value comes from the manufacturing. So as much as I would like to have a cobalt mine, I would probably prefer to have a mobile phone factory. The added value from manufacturing a mobile phone is far greater than extracting cobalt. So which countries are pursuing an import substitution model? The third world, precisely. These are the places where all the resources are being extracted. So they want to reduce their foreign dependency on the manufactured goods of others. They want to do so by increasing production within their own jurisdiction and in the process what do they want to create an internal market so they also want a skilled labor force an innovative labor force a creative labor force they also want to increase the standard of living of the populations but to achieve and i'm putting this question to you and i want an answer to achieve effectively import substitution, what is most essential? And the answer is not access to resources and not access to markets. What is essential? Skilled, right? The ability to do it, skills and the ability to do it. You're on track. Protectionism to make imports unattractive, so we need high tariffs. Keep going. You're on the right track. Maybe subsidies, so we think of it then, I have to grow these industries. I have to grow these industries. So I need to grow the industries. I have to make then the competition less attractive. I need skill to do it. But most of all, what do I need to bring over? Precisely, 
technology. Technology transfer. Why? It's already being done efficiently, proficiently even, elsewhere. And think back to the cotton manufacturing industry. And what did the Danes and the English and the French bring back from India? They did not just bring back textiles. They did not just bring back spun cotton or raw cotton. What did they bring? All the spinning and weaving machinery. Why? So they could do it themselves. And which type of laws, and some of you I know we studied it last term, were on the ascendant in the second half of the 20th century? Intellectual property intended to do what? to prevent others from gaining access to that technology. Now again, go back to what I said before. In the 18th century, taking the technology from others is standard commercial practice. 20th century, all of these other places are now thinking about trying to engage in import substitution. We don't want to buy your manufactured goods. We want to manufacture them ourselves. To do that, I need technology. You have the technology. So I invite engineers. I invite inventors. I offer them incentives to come set up shop in my country to help do this. And they'd say, I would love to, but there's a patent on that device. So you have to pay the royalties. So how many more bananas do I need to sell? before I can acquire the royalties necessary to buy the technology. Third model that emerges, export-oriented growth. Atlantic Fordism, import substitution, export-led growth. The aim with an export-led growth economy, I am going to produce goods for the world economy, specifically producing goods for the world economy. It is built on the logic of comparative advantage. The aim is to sell, to export so many goods, you can generate sufficient hard currency to buy all the other goods that you require. This is different from the import substitution. It does not mean that those who engaged in export-led growth did not engage in import substitution. It's that with import substitution, the aim was, we think the aspiration, the objective, to reduce foreign dependency. But with export-led growth, I said, what do these foreign markets want? What do they, what are they buying? And I am going to build my ability to provide that specific good. That is what I will develop. And not so different from the import substitution, it often involved creating barriers to competitive imports and it required some subsidies to the sectors as well. Because others would see what you were trying to do and then would flood your market in return to prevent you from becoming a capable competitor. And to some extent, and this will relate to a conversation that we're going to have in a couple of weeks, so I'll mention it now, you might also devalue your currency. You might also devalue your currency. Why? Why might you devalue your currency? You are now engaging in this export-led growth. You are trying to target certain markets. So 
the cheaper your currency, the cheaper the goods you are producing. So yes, you might not make as much, but ultimately what you come to do is then to dominate the markets and a positive balance of payments in the end. Yes. Export-oriented growth. What do you need then? Most of all, if you could whittle it down to one thing, yes, we need access to resources. But what do you need most of all? Access to markets. Why? Why do you need access to markets above all else? With import substitution, we know you need technology above all else. But with export-led growth, we say, yeah, technology is important, undoubtedly. Always Venn diagram. There's overlap in all of these. But it's essential to have access to markets. Why? You can sell it? Precisely. You need to find a place to sell the goods. You are now producing, overproducing, a colossal amount of a very narrow good. And so you have to exponentially grow your markets. And which countries, above all else, pursued export-led growth? China? Others? Singapore. The Asia Tigers? Taiwan. Singapore? Taiwan? Malaysia? Right? Korea? The list goes on and on. Export-led growth. They're looking for markets. Final one. Fourth one. Fourth economic model. State socialism. State socialism. I said to you, we ended up having a split. Even though we are in this period of cooperation, there's still a split between these four different economic models. It didn't happen in 1944, these four models emerged. No, these countries were already on a trajectory, and what we ended up seeing were, in fact, alliances between countries and specific regions that were pursuing something. So, import substitution, very common in South America. Mexico was in the lead of this. I remember they even started producing uh, VH v VHS, VCRs, VCRs, that was it. So video playing devices, televisions. Many of them tried producing cars as well. The list goes on and on. Recently, my own country, Egypt, just a few months ago, began the first, their very first mobile phone manufacturing company form of import substitution and this just happened last year but common in the Americas export-led growth very common across the Asian countries Atlantic Fordism why we call it Atlantic is that there was a transatlantic quality to it so Europe North America but then we also had we're leaving out a big chunk of the world we also had state Socialism. And state socialism was very straightforward. State ownership of the means of production. State ownership of the means of production. Central planning. So it's not just an industrial policy. It is planning all of the economic activities as it is the state that owns the means of production. So the state owns then the various instruments that one utilizes to grow food, to process food, to make steel, to make vehicles. The list goes on and on. All of that output 
the means of production, all of that output is owned by the state. And the aim is ultimately to convert, there was a commonality to these states, to convert what was an agrarian population, a peasant population, a farming population, to convert them into skilled workers. Convert them into skilled workers. But not skilled workers for the sake of it, skilled workers because the skill was necessary to industrialize, to modernize. We said before, with the different models, something very specific that we need. With this one, it's a little harder. It is a little more obscure. And there are multiple possible answers to it. But I'd like you to give it a go. What do you need above all else? to be successful from a state socialist perspective? Precisely. I'm hoping to get some wrong answers first. <laughs> you need a strong government. Why? Think of it, what we said. Central planning. The state owns the means of production. The state is determining which investments are going where. The state is providing the investments. So I need a strong state above all else. Some might go as far as to say you need a consensus among the population to pursue this, because if we think then in terms of what we've learned so far with regards to liberalism and the idea behind li liberalism being freedom, and freedom not just for myself but for everyone in pursuit of collective welfare, well, this also had collective welfare at the core, but the conception of freedom was very different. It doesn't mean there is no freedom, it means it's a different conception of freedom. And just as we required some kind of a consensus, and at least if we think transatlantically, democratic legitimacy, there was the need for another type of legitimacy which is ultimately why state socialism didn't succeed in that way, was the absence then of that popular legitimacy. Not in that people were necessarily fully opposed to the model itself, but you have to think then when that model was juxtaposed along another one, it began to lose a little bit of its sheen. So just to recap and then we'll take a break. The cotton manufacturing industry, the first global manufacturing industry, gave rise to international economic law. All the ideas we have today about protectionism, about liberalization, all of that emerged as a result of that specific manufacturing industry. Mercantilism and liberalism, two core theories that underpin the whole of the legal framework are oppositional. And that opposition necessarily led to tension and ultimately led to a collapse of that inter-European consensus compromise peace that had been in place in the 19th century. It resulted in high levels of protectionism, a bunch of walls going up. And you hear it in the media regularly. Everyone saying, what is taking place in America today? What is taking place in the UK today? All of these things that we see happening, all of this are precursors to the type of protectionist mindset, the type of chauvinistic violence that we saw emerge or proceed. The first 
Great European War and the Second Great European War. The protectionism, putting up walls. So, after those two wars, there's a push now for global economic cooperation. But that global economic cooperation was still beset with the same tension between mercantilism and liberalism. But it was also beset by another tension between the first world that had already industrialized, the second world that was agrarian but independent and pursuing industrialization, and the third world that was not independent because it had been colonized. So when we speak of three worlds, we're not speaking pejoratively about them. We're pointing to the differences in the economic models that were in place, and those economic models were contingent on the circumstances that they found themselves in. And so each one began pursuing an economic model that they thought would be most suitable for the advance of their populations. And that resulted then in a division in the models that operated. All of those, as we will see now in the second half, ended up being for naught and were ultimately subverted by one economic model, the neoliberal model, which we'll discuss in the second half of today's session.